What started as a casual conversation with our peers in grad school has turned into a passion for talking with creatives in Chicago. You are listening to This Moment Here. This Moment Here is sponsored by The Scene, Chicago's international journal of contemporary and modern art. The Scene features in-depth writing on exhibitions as well as highlight essays, artist profiles, and reviews. To read The Scene, published by Expo Chicago, visit thescenejournal.org or find a free printed publication throughout the city of Chicago. Hi everyone, you're listening to This Moment Here. I'm Sarah Reynolds. And I'm Madeline Finley. And we're joined on Zoom with Diana Guerrero Masia. Thank you for sharing your time with us and talking to us on Zoom. Thanks. Thanks for inviting me. So tell us a bit about like how you've been handling quarantine and how it's affected your routine and a little bit about yourself. Well, this, that, that's like a tremendous question to start with. Um, <laughs> I don't think I could talk about myself and talking about quarantine in the same sentence, but uh, no quarantine. I mean, this is uh, well, it's a great podcast title that you have this moment here because yeah, this moment here is, it's pretty, it's pretty fascinating. Um, I, I will say just to start off that I'm really glad that I do have the privilege of having a job and a house and we have a little outdoor space and, my husband and I can both like work remotely and my kid is working from school remotely. So things are kind of business as usual, but we're just occupying a lot of space together, you know? And um, yeah, I don't know how much you want me to talk about quarantine stuff, but um, <laughs> you, <laughs> well, you're, you can, you can introduce <clears throat> yourself a little bit. So you're, right. you're working remotely. You're a professor. I'm so yeah, I'm a, I'm a studio-based artist. Uh, I'm an art professor. I'm a mother. I'm uh, a partner. Uh, you know, I, I occupy lots of different roles in my life, but I, I do them all through the lens of art. And um, I, yeah, I work in the sort of expanded fields of textiles and painting. I think my work oh, has always kind of asked the question like where does a painting end and a textile begin and I'm, I'm definitely a, a studio maker I, I, I do make work from uh, I, I do make I'm a visual visual art maker I suppose and is that something you've been doing your whole life like when you were younger you were working with textiles or were you doing art in some form so uh, not textile specifically definitely art um, my mother it was a, a Spanish professor, but she was also a, like many Cuban women. Like she was very trained in handwork, so she was she was like a quilt. She is a quilt maker and a seamstress, and made a lot of my clothes. And so, when I growing up, my mom taught me how to sew. Um, although I didn't really listen to her, I wish I did. <laughs> She's a, she has won awards for her quilt. Huh? Yeah, she's she's like an award winning winning quilter. But um, but like we that. You know, I, I wasn't really like, she wasn't really directly teaching me because, I mean, I think as a child, I, I was more interested in running around outside and being outdoors. I wasn't actually like a homebody kid. I was like the kid climbing a tree. Mm-hmm. Um, but and my father was 
probably more the sort of energy that I got as a maker. He was a, a industrial design engineer and an inventor, and he had a workshop in his basement. So he, you know, we did a lot of like wood projects, metal projects, like things like welding, but like all just sort of experimentation. He wasn't doing, it wasn't like professional practice, what was going on in his workshop. It was, it was sort of like an inventor's madman's laboratory. I mean, which I actually did become, I shouldn't say it wasn't, it actually was a professional practice. He ended up inventing a lot of things and designing things. Uh, But I think from my observations, it was kind of like, it just became more like an alchemic thing about like learning how to blow something up. And, (laughs) (laughs) but they, you know, they both had a really pretty good sense of humor. And so I think the other important point, salient point about my childhood growing up was that I'm the child of Cuban exiles. And so we grew up outside of the country that we're from and that in itself is probably what's the most profound thing that's informed my practice and that it's it's not really from anywhere it doesn't represent anything but what it does talk a lot about is the sort of um you know what it what does it mean to be like so many immigrants in this country but like what does it mean to be from somewhere else but living in another place and that sort of the kind of both uh, non-alignment and the opening up of those things, um, I'm, you know, to sort of not, not overly sentimentalize the past, but kind of look for the future. I think it was uh, something that I learned from my parents early on. And that kind of like um, a provisional making do, which um, is very handy in this time, I will say, uh, um, you know, being able to work through a problem and like change, you know, make something better yourself rather than having to rely on stuff. I think was, was that, is that <clears throat> processing and response? Was that something you did through art at a pretty young age or was it something that you like realized you were processing later on in life and then turned to art? I think I was learning that later on. I don't, I mean, I don't, I was a kid in elementary school who was, I was very good at drawing and I was very good at like making bubble letters. <laughs> You're a that kid. A that kid. You made You're a that kid. kid. I was like a text kid. I was everyone really loves at... that. Everyone loves that kid. Yeah, I was like the Can kid. You write that... my name. Yeah, like I, I actually taught myself calligraphy. And I mean, honestly, so I think like my parents didn't let me go to the college that I wanted to, you know, for wanted, undergrad, for undergrad, they made me go to a Catholic university. But Where was that? I went, I went to Villanova university, which is a great school, but, yeah. um, but not a good art program, but I had wanted to go to like Carnegie Mellon or RISD, which both had really strong art programs. And I knew that then, and I knew then that I wanted to go into design. And I think like I would have been really good at like topography or graphic. Like I thought, I I had like career ambitions to be like an advertiser <laughs> and like work in marketing, you know, Sounds but, but that was not in my, in my card. So, you know, what ended up happening was I learned about literature and history and I went to a really good university. And then I didn't learn about like the, the, I didn't learn about the commercial part of art. I learned about the, like the ideas part of it. And, um, 
So, you know, that kind of changed things. But, you know, my mom is a professor and my father, um, they're both pretty educated people. So I think it actually made sense to like where I ended up. So what did post undergrad look like for you? Did you go in another direction into a profession? So I, yeah. So what is here? Here we ask the decade of. Oh, yeah. Because I love thinking of decades in alignment with your life because your artwork, your artwork, you know, we, we've spoke about this, how we, it's like you can't place a decade on it. There's well, so it's different styles in it. Yeah. So we, um, I mean, and I thought a lot about that with the show, we could talk about that later, but, um, so I, that's a good question because I came of age in, um, I went to undergrad in the eighties. Um, I graduated like, so in from 19, so 1984, which was like the, the year that the, the apocalypse was supposed to happen, you know, was when I graduated high school and I started, um, undergrad and then, Again, you know, I then I, and I went to grad school really young, so I finished Cranbrook in the in 1992. So that, the, but that era of like from 80s to night, like the late 80s, early 90s, is is a really key moment in the art world. Of like, um, it was it was a very it was, it was a moment when um, that sort of this I the ideas of philosophy and the moment when we thought that art actually had meaning. So everything was kind of coming to this collapsing end. Like, you know, painting was dead. Sculpture had been destroyed in the seventies, like meaningful expressions through any classical inheritance was like long, just thrown out the window. And, you know, we had already had like these other, like even philosophical ideals of, of non-existence were sort of already being thrown out. And that void was just being filled by the capital markets. And it, so I think being educated in a moment when the, the art world was at this massive transition really didn't place me anywhere. And so it like, and, and I, and I'll admit, I wasn't like the super savvy kid at the time. <laughs> I wasn't really like totally, you know, like I, I wasn't one of those kids in art school who was like, you know, who like would know every answer to everything. I was more like the sensing feeling kid who was kind of like, man, shit is weird. Yeah. Like, you know, <laughs> so. Um, but, <laughs> I feel like we both feel that. Yeah. It was just like, this is just wrong. Like, so I kind of knew New York was the center and this sort of post Warhol moment of commerce and art was really reigning supreme. And, and that was, it wasn't. So now you go to grad school and people like talk about their commercial appeal. It, you, mm-hmm. it, people talk, you know, students want access to, to, you know, collectors like in, in 1988 and 1990, like art students, believe it or not, weren't actually talking about whether they wanted to be represented by a gallery. In fact, they were not interested in that at all. You know, it, it seems like that grad students nowadays <coughs> towards gallery representation and selling work before they've even developed their work. Mm-hmm. I agree. But just to kind of put one other kind of framer of what I was doing at the time that was very important 
was between undergrad and graduate school, I, I went into the, I, I had applied for the Peace Corps. I actually was trying to go abroad and I didn't, you know, nobody wanted a visual artist in the Peace Corps. Like I was told that multiple times, but I had had this. Why like, what not? The, yeah, I was applying to like Nepal and they're like, what the fuck are you going to do in Nepal? Like, what's, what tangible skills do you have? And I was like, well, I can dig a hole, you know? <laughs> I'm surprised by that, actually. No, but, but I ended up doing. Um, but I ended up doing. So, Teach for America wasn't actually in any formation. So, I did. I wanted to educate, and I did join the Jesuit Volunteer Corps, and I went to California. And so, I did an entire year of sort of uh, social justice work, which was really, which really informed my artwork. The critical position of having sort of equity and, and social justice in my work was always there. Yeah. That's, that's so interesting. <clears throat> it's nice that you found that when you were like so young and it's carried throughout your practice for this long. Yeah. How long were you in California? I didn't know you had lived in California. It was, I was just there for a year and I honestly, and I had done it really with the intention of, so I really wanted to go to Berkeley I sort of had these like dreams of um, uh, like, I thought I was going to go to U- actually I wanted to go to UC Davis and I had these ideas that like early on that sort of the sensibilities of um, the kind of, well, I've always been drawn to Northern California and the sort of the progressiveness of that thinking was interesting to me. And, and, I can't remember exactly what happened, but I ended up not staying there and I got into Cranbrook and they get the, I know what happened. Cranbrook gave me a, a full ride and you know, that was really hard to turn down. Yeah. So. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just that but, little thing. <laughs> that thing. But they, um, but I, but I had been seeking out these spaces. Like I had done like after that, I had also done a lot of these like, I had worked on a sustainable farm in Vermont for like three or four months. I worked at another space that was like run by Mennonites and we were like tapping trees and making maple syrup. So there was like this deep hippie shit that I was like trying to find. And, and I, and I was, found it. I think you found it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right. Sure. Uh, <laughs> But, you know, I did have a kind of a belief in um, being, well, you know, like that optimism that comes from, you know, knowing how to build and make things and change things. Anyway, that's all. I don't even know what the question was. (laughs) Well, we were asking about your transition from California into like the next step, which I guess seems like grad school for you. So you were in Cranbrook. Can I ask you like, what did grad school look like for you and your peers at that time? Oh like, were people applying? Was it was that a common step that people took, or were you kind of on what a? What was a co- no? I got to grad school and I, I was like a fish out of water. Um, most of these people had come through uh, like art programs, and you know, like we're were pretty like they were lots more savvy than I was like I mean for context it's important that everyone knows that like my undergraduate 
my parents were very educated and I grew up going to like the metropolitan. I grew up going to the museums. I mean, I was, I was, I'm in no way uneducated, um, but I was educated by, you know, Cubans who had like, under, you know, valued museums and classical music and poetry and stuff like that. I didn't. And then I got that kind of classical education at, at Villanova. But what I hadn't gotten was the contemporary art part of it. I mean, I had started like when I was in undergrad, I had like I lived I could jump on a train. And even when I was in high school, like we could get on a train and go to New York City. Like I was in New York City in the early 80s, like buying records and and, like walking around Washington Square Park, you know, and like, you know, thinking we were really cool, like trying to buy. What? What? You probably were really cool. I don't know. I mean, or stupid. I mean, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, like we were, you know, like we were looking for stuff and, and, you know, we like, so there was this like, so I think I was, I'm like, kind of like a little bit punk, a little bit hippie, a little bit prep, kind of like a little bit outsider. And that all sort of rolled into anyway. But when I got to Cranbrook, I think I had like all these influences that were a little bit different than a lot of my cohorts, but I did start to, the one good thing was that the professor in the painting department at Cranbrook at the time had like a soft spot for anyone who was Latino. (laughs) Like he had this whole thing about, and so he, he, without really intending to, we had a pretty diverse group of like Latinas and and, and, and it's, you know, in 1990, there weren't a lot of Latinos or black people in graduate art programs and Cranbrook actually had a few and like, that was sort of remarkable, but, um, but really it wasn't um, part of the dialogue either. We were meant to be there to pepper it out and to, mm. you know, but, but our time there wasn't for us to assert ourselves, it was for us to be acclimating into the center, which is kind of, you know, fascinating also. So what did your work look like in the <laughs> first, I guess, months in grad school? Oh my God. I have no idea. It, like, you do have an idea. So, I, <laughs> so like, so like, like my undergrad work was like, all this like figurative painting based on like Albert Camus, the stranger and a really angsty figuration. And then like after doing this sort of social justice work, it was like angsty figuration that was about equity, you know? So like things about like people in shackles and things about poverty. I was looking at people like Ben Sean, like social realism a lot. And so there was a lot of kind of, like dimensionality. I worked on wood and I painted and there were like a lot of like, like Anselm Kiefer was a big hero. So there's a lot of like materials and like steel and rusted, you know, stuff. And then like a, a figure painted in there, you know, maybe a door or a window, you know, I mean, it's also like, like, I mean, like who was like, Rauschenberg was huge. Right. Yeah. I mean, so so yeah so like collaging and people like hc westerman like people who had like real material based practices were really popular you know um like you're interested in narrative or like or just figures 
I don't know. It seems narrative. I mean, I think it is. I think it's like literary, but it's not. You mean from the past? Yeah. No. 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 Not now. Not. Yeah. I mean, I read a lot, so um, I mean, I think like probably my work was most informed. Like at the time, a lot of my painter peers were being informed by philosophy, but I was being informed by poetry. I read a lot of poetry and like things like opera scores in college. We had like my my professor made us listen to opera, you know. Um, so this is like very anti. Like that wasn't really that was going against the current of what we were supposed to be doing in 1990, you know. You feel like there was a point, like, it sounds like you were um, creating visuals based on other people's stories. Mm. And then was there a transition period where you started making work about your own story? Um, Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think that's a great question. I think, I think my own story has always been in that. Um, But uh, yeah, I don't know it's hard to know then what I was actually thinking about. I think I thought I was making stories about myself, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, cause a lot of the figures were myself. Like I did paint myself a lot. I looked at, you know, I did a lot of, you know, I, and I was kind of touching on the outsiderness of my, like knowing that I was not, um, well, I, like I knew that I passed, but I knew that I was not part of the, you know, I mean, we didn't have all these conversations about diversity and inclusion then, but like being a Latina from an ex, you know, of an exiled country, like I knew I sort of didn't fit in anywhere, but, and I knew that that was in my work. Mm -hmm. um, And I did seek out people like me in grad school just to talk about that, but they were more overt, like they were, they were sort of more overtly telling stories. So so yeah, maybe. I mean, sure. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking about like my own experience with going to grad school and you saying that because you didn't go to a traditional art school for undergrad and then grad school was kind of like that introduction to the contemporary. I feel like I yeah. had more experience because I didn't get an art education in undergrad. Yeah, it is. It, it's always, I mean, I think it's great because I think art exists in the world. It doesn't exist in institutions. And I think it's a really important understanding of that. I would even add to that, that even Cranbrook itself was like a little bit of an art monastery and we were pretty sheltered from the world and we weren't in New York and Detroit all, in the nine. We were like living in a different time where like accessibility was so limited. Oh, yeah. No, we wrote letters. Like there was no internet when I was in grad school. Like, like, yeah. like so, yeah. you know, you went to the library to look at a book and we would drive to the DIA in Detroit to see art. And Detroit had this great like underground rave scene and, you know, there was a lot of house music and we would go dancing. And so how far was that? Detroit. Oh, I mean, it's like 10 miles down the road. Oh. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, have you guys been to Cranbrook? It's kind of like... No, but in my... This is so funny. I I mean, a few months ago before all of this, I met a girl at the nail salon named Grace McCooch. 
she was around my age and we just started talking. She was a student at Cranbrook right now. And I thought of you because how she explained it, it sounds like they still maintain that approach where it's kind of like you guys are all there. There's nothing really around. And it's kind of like everyone is, it's like commune kind of style. How she it is. It. I mean, it's kind of, yeah. And it's, Experience. She's from Chicago, and we talk about our experience, like mine at SAC, and then hers there, and it seems like very different experience. So different. I mean, and knowing that I had been looking for this sort of like utopianist space in like San Francisco, and I, like I ended up finding. I loved Cranbrook. I I loved everything about it, um, and I'm really glad that I went there. But it really was an incubator. I think my eyes got really wide open when I left Cranberg and right after I graduated, I went to Skowhegan and that's when I was like, I was hit over the head with like all these kids who were like super (laughs) smart, like totally players in the art world. They really like, and I would just remember being like, wow, I don't know any of this shit. (laughs) like people who, but like everybody, was, it was like, it was about name dropping and connections and like who they were the studio assistants to and how they got into Skowhegan. And I was like, I just got in because somebody like, 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 so that kind of like, there's something reassuring about finding yourself in those spaces when you knew that you didn't get in because somebody got you in. Like, yeah. I mean, I don't know, Sarah, if that, if you had that feeling or not, but like, I think there's something great about knowing that you know, you're just making it because you're, you're doing that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Uh, I I definitely, when I decided I was going to apply to grad school, I felt like I was 18 again, because like my world had been so separate from the art grad school game and hierarchy. Like I hadn't been a part of that world. So it was kind of re-educating myself and asking people their advice and trying to navigate it. And then once, in grad school, I felt like I had a lot of catching up to do just in terms of like skills. Yeah. Because I was self-taught. I didn't know simple things about, you know, stretching a canvas and that sort of thing. So it was kind of like, I felt like I was doing double duty often. Yeah. Yeah. I had a similar thing. Yeah. Like my, my teachers in undergrad were all monks and they were priests. Really? At Villanova? (laughs) Yeah. Holy shit. I know. know yeah. They, I mean, you know, like I, you know, it, I mean, it's fascinating, but I, and I did learn a lot from them, but I learned about older stuff from them. Like I learned about old, you know, mm-hmm. but yeah. Anyway. So what brought you to Chicago? I wanted some Gauhegan juice. Yeah. I wanted some juice that if you don't want to, if you don't want to spill any. Oh, what juice about what? I don't know. We we interviewed um, Gonzalo Reyes a few months ago, and he had just finished last summer. And he was saying, like, he said, "There's such like le- there's such legacies there." You know, he said, "You're like walking around, and you enter someone's studio, and like you see like names of artists who just written their names from like decades ago." And yeah. man, I just got I just like felt oh, it just seems so cool. And like you're kind of a generation of artists that like. I mean, how long had Skowhegan been around when you had gotten there? Oh, I mean, I went in 92, and I think it had been going since the 20s or the 30s. I don't, like, I mean. That's insane. So but, I don't know, like, do you, how do you feel like it benefited you? And what was it like? And was anyone there? Like, did you meet lifelong artist friends there? Or like. Yeah. 
I definitely. In fact, that was how I ended up coming to Chicago because I met two people and one of them, Tim, who you guys should meet. They run a space, Tim Dowd and Zoe Charlton run a space in Baltimore. Um, they're both American university professors. Oh, cool. But I can talk about them later. But so Tim's roommate and my roommate started to have sex a lot. <laughs> and Tim and I were both like, what the heck? You know, like, like, you know, and Tim and I had been getting along really well. Like we were just buddies. Um, and so Tim just ended up moving into the woman's dorm and he didn't care. Cause oh, in the dorms, the door, the, the woman's house, the women's house, you know, and you know, he was a queer man. So he like all the women were like, yeah, come on in. So yeah, I mean, Skohika was really interesting. It was, it didn't have the same vibe. I mean, I knew that it was, uh, I also, you know, I also sort of think I stumbled into Skowhegan. I didn't really know what Skowhegan was. Somebody told me to apply. I, I wasn't really trying to get in. <laughs> People, artists our age would give a year of their life to just step it into Skowhegan. No, and I mean, honestly, I think a lot of us were like, what the fuck are we doing here? Like, we're in the middle of the woods. You know, this is kind of fun. But like, we kind of figured it out. I, I sort of figured out that it was pretty great. I mean, I met Mel Edwards. John Frommenhein, oh my gosh, uh, Jane Hammond, Christy Rupp, who else was there? There were all like John Armanoff. Mm. I don't remember like who were all the artists there. Like all these artists came through. We talked a lot, but like the people themselves, you know, the culture of art. I think for me, what what really impressed me about Skowhegan was that. There was, and this is something I think that they still do to this day, which makes it incredibly hard for people to get in, is that I don't think Skowhegan has ever chosen a class of people that are all the same. Hmm. And I'm not just talking about diversity and race. I'm talking about the way people make art as artists. So when I was there, it was like, there was an amazing figure, you know, there was somebody who was like a figurative painter. There was somebody who was, you know, total cold abstraction. There was somebody who was a conceptual painter, you know, every, like it, there was like the Bay area artist making like groovy paintings, you know, there wasn't really, you couldn't look at anyone's work and define either an outcome or a style. And, and that is what really kind of gave me permission Cause I was like, Oh, I'm just here because of what I'm doing. Like mm -hmm. I'm not supposed to do anything that anyone else is doing. I'm supposed to be doing me. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what my biggest takeaway was from that space was, you know, this, like, they really do tell you, like, you just have to be, you know, like, this is like, you gotta, yeah. Like who you are is what, what we're interested in. And there wasn't any desire for me to do anything else but that. I mean, and then I kind of just dug in and like exploded. I started doing all these, at Cranbrook I was doing, I've never been like a pure painter. So I was like doing all these weird things like, like deconstructing surfaces and then like putting them back on the walls and doing installations and then doing lots of weird process-based painting installations and even like time-based painting installations that were kind of, that I would just slowly deconstruct over time. But, you know, it was just nine weeks to just do that. And Was that. there any sort of like, I guess, pressure to make or a, like accountability? Like, did you feel like someone was like watching you or other people were watching you in some way that if like you took a day off, you were 
just. Oh God, no, no pressure. And I don't know what it's like now. I mean, it seems like a, it, it actually seems like, like everything in the art world, it seems like it's morphed into something else that I don't really, I can't speak to because I haven't been there. But I mean, it's because it's been like um, 30 years since I've been there, but no, quite the contrary. In fact, they were like buying us beer. There was like so much weed on campus. They were have like bowls of condoms in every dorm, you know, I, you know, and then like, so we're like, so what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to like party. Like everyone yep. knew that the library was the only room that had a lock on it. So that's where everyone went to have sex. I didn't have sex with anyone because I had a boyfriend, the Baltimore guy. You know, who I was trying to be. For the record, Deanna didn't have sex. For the record, I did not have sex at Skohegan, although I could have, you know. But that was sort of like, like that was, it just seemed like everyone was just like having a good time, you know. Yeah, I feel like, I mean, Sarah Sarah and I talk about this. I hope you don't mind, Sarah. It's not anything crazy. But I guess like in our... I feel like in grad school too kind of produces this ideology where like the more productive you are, like the better art you're going to have. And like, just the more you produce, like to put pressure on like just producing, producing, maybe not even processing that slowly or like this idea of like, so what's next? What are you doing? Like, what are you making? Like, have you talked to anyone? What do you have lined up? That pressure is really, I think, prominent. What did you say? Yeah. Yeah. And I, it's like really refreshing and sometimes kind of sad when we hear, when we interview artists who are not so young working right now, who are like more established, who like back in the, I know I don't know how to finish. <laughs> when you they, call me old. <laughs> no. Um, I'm but old. It's fine. <laughs> culture just seems like it shifted at some point into this, this idea of being an artist. Something has shifted. Well, it's- what shifted was the the void of ideas got filled with capital market. I mean, it's like what shifted was the art market and the kind of all-consuming blind consumption. Listen, if quarantine and COVID-19 is going to do anything good for the art world, please mark my word, it's going to hopefully reinvigorate an interest in um, asking why artists are making things rather than how fast they're making them and how they can produce for the market. You know, like we don't talk about those parts of the end result of why there is that drive. Well, I I was actually thinking about this this morning when I, because a lot of my work is pretty small and a lot of that has to do with just like resources and what I can afford. Yeah, Um, It's also has to do with the casting process being one-to-one, but it was like, I had a moment in my studio this morning where I was thinking like, at what point does an artist transition into making these huge room size works? Like, what is that? I don't know. Like, is it all of a sudden you have a giant gallery or a museum or collector that's decided that your work should get larger or does that artist have money that they hadn't shown before and then all of a sudden they're making these huge works because there's no way that I could afford or store a huge piece so like yeah it's it's both I think I think privilege and access and you know there's so much money floating around the art world and there's there are there are always the exceptions to the rule okay There are always going to be people who came up through their bootstraps and who really just did it. And those are the exceptional people. But probably for every one of those persons, there is somebody who 
has a, a sponsor, whether that is their family or their patron. And, you know, and I think this is where like, but that's not any different than what it was like in the 15th century. And, the, you know, like patronage and art is always there. But we don't talk about like an individual's artist's ability to sustain that practice themselves. I mean, Madeline, you've been to my studio. I can't afford a giant studio. I'm also a parent, you know, how do, how do parent artists, you know, all these artists in the past who women had to give up either their parenting or they had to do it sort of badly, Mm -hmm. you know, or they, you know, and I'm not judging anyone or they just chose not to have children. Men often just didn't parent at all, but had many babies you know, so if you are trying to be a parent and an artist and doing all this stuff, like, how do you do that? You know, and like, if you have another job as well, like, mm-hmm. how, how do you do that outside of the house? I mean, you know, I want a home studio because I, I, I think that the art and the work and my life is all rolled up in one. But to get back to that question about like, I think it, I think it's part of the institutional framework to say you have to make work every day you have to make a drawing every day you know these like ideas that like you know practice means that it's always happening and I don't don't agree with that I definitely think making work every day is not as like nice I guess I'm speaking more to like making work every day equating to equating equating to that but also like what if you just want to enjoy making a drawing does it have to be for the outcome to be to send it, to send images off to people, to like post it, like so other people know you're working. Like, I don't know. Like the charade, yeah. Yeah. I mean, but I also think that making work every day does not only mean like making artwork. Yeah. I don't, you I know. Mean, I mean, I think like I take a walk every day and that's part of my practice. I think more about my art while I'm walking than I do when I'm sitting in my studio. I mean, when I'm sitting in my studio not working, I'm probably more trying to, like, not think about anything, you know, because I'm trying to empty my brain out. So there's, like, there's, like, active making, and then there's other types of making that aren't, like, quantified in objects. Well, how do you feel about the whole social media charade? Like, when you make a piece... Asking the wrong. <laughs> How do you feel about social media? Yeah, I mean, like, are you hesitant to share new work on social media? And I guess I don't know if you want to talk about it, but you currently have a show up at Carrie Seacrest. Yeah, viewable digitally. Like, how has that changed? Because, like, obviously, seeing work digitally is not the same. Yeah. So, I mean, that's a great question, and I think, um, you know. I have not had, I mean, I've sort of reluctantly started an Instagram account a few years ago because one of my studio assistants was like, no, you really have to do this, you know? And just like, you know, I don't know, eight years ago, I reluctantly started a website or 10 years ago, you know, like, like how many years ago, like, I guess like 10 years ago, it was like, okay, I have to have a website. And then like five years ago, I was like, all right, I have to be on Instagram, you know? And then like when this show happened and then COVID happened, my husband was like, you have to make it a public account. 
<laughs> you've worked on this show. You've worked on this artwork for over a year. Yeah. You know, Joe, he's very wise and I love him. He's like, no, you have to slide that little bar over and make that a public account, you know, because, I, you know, it's like, I don't, I mean, That's so funny. I haven't, like, if you've looked at my Instagram account before, it hasn't been like a nonstop onslaught of work. And I have it. Like, I have... I have a massive amount of work that I've made over 25 years. I could be filling my Instagram feed with images ad nauseum promoting my work. I just, I'm just not that keen on it, but I have made myself do it for this show. And, you know, like those like big front and center pieces. And you know what, what I've realized is like, Oh, it doesn't fucking matter, you know, like, but I mean, for me, I think, like th- this work needs to be seen. So at this point, I mean, I'm doing it because I really want another institution to give it an opportunity to have a, have a space because it's like the best body of work I've ever made. Oh. <laughs> I'm glad I saw it before. I know it's heartbreaking. It's really heartbreaking not to have it out there. So. But you know what? I think, I think you're right. I think, um, I mean, I'm, I don't doubt that it will be seen in the in a lar- in a in another space when all of this is done. Yeah, and that's like that's where I'm comforted because I'm like, oh, well, this is just an exhibition. Like the art is alive, the art lives without the exhibition, and it's going to live again. And you know, so we can post a bunch of photos of it. So you did, po- yeah, you did post. On your now public Instagram, so everyone, <laughs> everyone listening can see That's what you funny. post, what you made. Here, um, I'll, I'll find it. Uh, I mean, Sarah has only seen images online, but do you wanna? I mean, you just said this is the best body of work you've ever made, which. Well, I mean, this year. <laughs> that, must, but that must feel really nice. Do you want to talk about like where you're at with your practice, and like why do you feel that like, this show has been so? Well, let me just start by saying I always believe that every body of work I make is the best thing I've made when I right when I've made it. You know, like like it's like it's I mean, that's the why I'm an artist, because I'm I'm really curious about that that change, you know, and like I'm I'm not competing with anybody. Like I'm just I'm just working through these things and I'm always excited about where it leads me. So by saying it's the best work I've ever made, it doesn't mean that I don't think the work I made in the past isn't any good. I think that work is really good too. I'm just really right now excited about it, but then I'm going to make another group of work and this work is going to be like, Oh yeah, whatever. Like, it's not like it's going to stay the best. It's just what, what's exciting me right now. And that's fun, you know? Cause I'm always surprised like, and it's not what I thought it would be when I started. Um, and it kind of, you know, I, I love, I love, I mean, this is the painter in me. Like I love not knowing the outcomes of my work when I start, I never know what they're going to look like. I have like a weird idea and I'm kind of like, like I want it to look like something, but like, and, and then, and then maybe like, but then it starts to generate itself and then other things come out and I'm like really excited. <laughs> did you do any, I mean, I know you, because we did luckily get to talk about the work in person. 
few months ago, which feels like so long ago. We're like, like oh, man, April, March. That's right. That was just, that was like years ago. I know. But you started the series, correct, correct me if I'm wrong, with the series of drawings that you did. Is that, was that a new process for you? No, I, I'm always drawing and making little collages. But what I did do was I, because I was traveling a lot in the summer and because I had been the chair and I was like super busy, I did just kind of allow myself to not have to go into the studio and like make something big. You know, I allowed myself to just draw for a while because it was really all I could do for a while because it was, and, and like the show that I had last year in San Francisco was similar. It, it was all work on paper because it's, for me, it's a lot easier to come out, like work on work on paper than, you know, the show I had at Carrie Seacrest, I guess that was three years ago, was like a culmination of five years of work. Wow. So, yeah. Did I answer your question? Yes. Yeah. I mean, I do, I like, I, I I'm, like I work a lot, but I work like in really big bursts. And then like, I don't work. Like I'm not working in my studio right now. You know, I just, right now I'm not doing anything, but I'm kind of like in my brain, I'm thinking about what I want to do. But like, I'll probably won't get back to work till school is out. Mm-hmm. You know. You're, you're been such a big what? This whole school or your son's school? Oh, my, my school. I always have to work around his schedule and like when SAC ends and his school ends is a month. And that's a month that I know it's right now he's upstairs, you know, like usually that's like my, like, that's like my get busy time. Yeah. Cause it's actually, cause summer has its own like vibe to it, you know, and you gotta like go, you know, we gotta take a lot of bike rides and do yeah. lots of stuff, you know, so I can't be like just in my studio all the time, but there are these chunks of time that I can be at least daily in the studio without, you know, and I like to be like a wanderer in my studio. I, I, I like, like I want to binge watch Netflix shows for a while and like not do anything and lay on the floor and like stare at stuff. Like, I don't want to, like, I'm not totally disciplined, <laughs> you know? <laughs> I think it's very disciplined. I'm laughing because that's what she does too. That's what I do. I do. Yeah. But I, 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 I kind of, I like, I think that's a form of like moving meditation. You know, it's just like, it's an empty out. It's like <laughs> emptying out your brain for a while so you can like really get to something and it being like in there, but it's like, you're not, you're not like, I really like effortless work. You know, I mean, I, my work is very, it takes a lot of effort to make it, but I like that it arrives, it arrives to me in an effortless way. Yeah. I'm, it's nice to hear you say that. I wish, I wish there was more room for us to feel like people just make in different ways and like work in different ways and process their art in their studios in different ways. I think there is room. I think there's a lot of room for that. And I think that there's a lot of, and I think that it, making can be very, it's so esoteric and it, I think it has to do with privilege and gender and expression and all these different ways that someone moves in the world. Like I remember when Hamza Walker was in my studio and he was talking about like the scale of my paintings, 
you know, and like he saw that I had like, I was stretching them to the entirety of the wall because that's where I was. And he's just, you know, he's like, yeah, well, you know, it was great to see Carrie James Marshall in his early days because he was doing the same thing. It's like you're filling, you you know, you just, you fill the space that you have until you have something else. And, you know, it's like, it doesn't, and, and that's okay. And I think historically, a lot of the work that we look at, I mean, look at Magritte, you know, like he painted on his kitchen table. Like, like scale isn't, this is where this thing about capital and the explosion of, of the market in the art market is really not about culture. It's about a very small group of people. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it's important to remember that when the economic collapse in 2007 happened or eight, eight, like, nine. You know, like the art market was selling work in like some of the hottest ways in the like with price tags that were like they were breaking records selling like Damien Hirst's work. So is it possible to say that that the you know, we always talk about art reflecting our culture. Mm-hmm. It's only it's reflecting our culture for a small group of people. Yeah. It's not reflected. And so every artist, unless you are an artist with a a tremendous amount of privilege, then you're going to be reflecting a culture that looks a little bit different. And therefore your expression of that and the manner in which you have to work and your capacity like at labor is going to be adjusted to the means that you have. It's not going to be marked by the same expression that other people have you know well kind of in that same realm I've been thinking about how this quarantine could potentially affect the way people make work and I'm thinking about in terms of access like if you can't access your space or the materials you need or just if it affects people psychologically or mentally and shifts their subject matter yeah Um, definitely probably going to yeah. Have you, so. have you felt, I know you said you haven't really been making that much right now, but has, have you felt that at all? Like where you're shifting any sort of like topic or. Well, what I've done, I mean, you know, okay. So I have done a bunch of little doodles, but like, I mean, I haven't, you know, because the last three weeks, my studio has been taken over with digital equipment to record online teaching tutorials and like I, I never have so many cords and microphones and like tripods set up in my studio and I don't have a big studio. So like my table is what I have to make artwork on. But I mean, the, the good part of this is like, I'm learning things like stop animation. <laughs> I'm like, you know, my, my reluctant self, you know, social media person is like making myself put myself out there um, I hope I'm doing a good job. I don't, you know, I, I always feel like it's like the awkward kid in the corner being like, Ugh. It's not that, Deanna. I don't know why no. you have it in your head. People well, because- stop animation. What? I really like the video you posted. Yeah. I mean, I feel like for me, I'm spending the time trying to make sure, like, like galleries are always like, they always want stuff. Like, you know, like, and I, and I think I'm old enough to be like, I will give you what I can when I'm ready. Mm -hmm. you know and 
I will get it to you, but I don't know what it's going to look like, you know, <laughs> but I want it to feel like me. And when I land on that, I'll share it with you, you know, like, and that's the relationships that I had. And unfortunately I work with two commercial galleries that are so supportive of that way of working and they both get it, mm-hmm. you know, and they don't, you know, like. How did those relationships push. come to be? So Treywick did a studio visit with me. Like I've been working with her for like 17 years, 16 years. So I think after I got a Tiffany grant, um, she, I think I had some work in like art fair or something and she asked to do a studio visit and I had, I was working on a new body of work that was going to be shown at bodybuilder and sportsman, which was, was then like Tony White's gallery. And she really liked the work a lot. Um, and I think, being a Berkeley based gallery, she got early on that idea of materiality and, you know, n- like she never asked me like, why are you painting the fabric or are these fabric paintings? Like she never said stupid shit like that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like I didn't have to even have those conversations about what is that, you know, which I'm still having in 2020, um, which I just stopped answering now, you know, but uh, so she was really great. And so we've just been showing, she's just been showing with me regularly. And then Carrie Seekers came because I had a solo show at the South Bend Museum of Art. And Britain, I knew, had curated me into like another show a couple of years earlier. And he asked me if he could come see the show in South Bend. And they just like, and Carrie, like, they just liked everything I was doing. And they were, they just were like, yes. They just, you know, it was just like this, like, it was just exciting. Like, they they were like, there was no conditions on any of it. They were like, we want it all, you know? <laughs> and that was kind of awesome because, like, but I had the work, like, and I was, I was, I had all this work that I was about to put up in this other museum and then I got to put it up in the museum. But then after looking at it for a few months in the museum, then I got to like bring in other work that had been sold for the, you know, for Carrie. I got to re-throw, like I, I put a whole, like I sort of restaged it in an entirely different way, you know, and it was really nice to have that space. And I had been doing like these giant sort of unstretched kind of painting textiles that have more narrative in them. and. They, they were supposed to be heroic and epic. And so it was really great to kind of get them up on the wall. You can see that in the Carrie Seekers website, um, the slow blossoming show. Nice. So, and I think that was, you know, that was a nice, yeah. Well, we're towards the end of the show. Is there something you want to share about the current show and where people can view it? Oh yeah. So they're, they're the devil's daughter is getting married. Um, there's a lot of images on Carrie Seekers' website, also on my Instagram page, but you know, it really came out of a sort of a lifelong question about how do we look at things? Um, how do paintings speak to us? How do pictures speak to us? What does the, you know, what a, when does a painting end and a textile begin? I mean, I think that's always been my question. And how do classifications sort of compartmentalize those things? Like, I'm really not interested in those. So, 
you know, my lived experience of the hybridity of like not being from someplace, like, I think that's very much reflected in the work. Like it's not from a lineage of anything, but it's very much uh, a new third space. It's in ways I'm not, you know, I'm not a queer maker, but like there is a dialogue with that kind of making something that's not, that's different, you know, that's, that does not fit into this binary category. But, you know, they're all collaged and pieced and dyed and they're stitched as reconsiderations of the field and form. And, you know, they're fun to look at. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I have more to talk about. The best work she's ever made. Yeah. (laughs) And go follow. And how, okay, so they can just find the website for that. Yeah. I mean, there's, they're, and they're meant to be looked at over time. They're about time and the passage of time and the materiality unfolds itself over time. There's an immediacy to them. But if you actually look at them deep, you know, deeply, the way that they're constructed, they're done through very slow, meticulous craft processes that um, are actually meant to be hidden and invisible because that kind of hidden labor is always invisible. And I think that that's, important to have as a marker of time you know that i could could talk to you about this for for hours we did so many things i i still don't know how you ended up in chicago really i don't know what it was like if he was an artist starting off there oh in chicago friend from Skowhegan. Oh, how did I get here? So my my roommate, my 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 sweet roommate at the time, Tim was 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 graduating from SAIC, and I had graduated from Cranbrook. And I mean, I lived on the East Coast, and I I knew in my heart that I didn't want to live in New York City. Like it was like no, like I could, like I had this really. That's why I was like going to San Francisco and stuff like that. Like I was like, I'm not a New York person. Like I don't. I grew up around New York and I just didn't want to live there ever. And everybody was going to New York and Tim being the sweet kid, like bubbly Midwesterner was like, I live in Chicago. You know, why don't you come here? And I sort of was just like sight unseen, like packed up my Subaru and drove to Chicago. And he had gotten an apartment in Wicker Park, actually right on Wicker Park Avenue, like in on Wicker Park, which is now like this hot spot of Wicker what's Park. There, what's there now? It's like a br- brick, a brick uh, two flat across from the park. Um, oh, wow. There's like a dog park. And then it's this beautiful like 19th century house. That was an apartment. Probably like $2 million. Yeah. Probably $2 million. And we paid like five, like 600 bucks for like 700 bucks for an apartment. And I got a studio in, um, on Elston Avenue, which is now like, I think like a yoga place, you know, like Elston and Webster. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had a studio there for a few years. I couldn't get a job at SAIC. I tried to be a part-time faculty member. I applied for teaching jobs for like five years. I taught high school on the West side in Humboldt Park and in um, Garfield Park. Nobody wanted to hire me as a professor because I wasn't like, they're like, what do you make? <laughs> you know and I was just like whatever I'm just gonna do my shit you know and then I finally got like a professorship at Washington University in St. Louis and so I went there for a few years and that kind of like authenticated yeah it was like I was trying to be an art professor for years and nobody would even nobody in Chicago would hire me like UIC University of Chicago like Northwestern nobody would hire me as a part-time faculty member and you know I'm like what that sucks so 
I just went and got a full-time job in St. Louis. And then I came back and I got hired at SAC full-time. And so I was like, okay, well, this will work. I wasn't going to, honestly, I wasn't going to come back to Chicago. I was kind of done with it by that point. And at the time when I did that job search, and that was like right, uh, like right when 9-11 happened, like that was 2001 was like my first week of school. And I I had made this, I had gotten a couple of like job offers like in, um, in like Lowell, Massachusetts, like University of Dayton. And I was like, ah, you know, I cannot move to these places. You're like, oh, actually, Chicago, maybe I'll stay. Yeah, yeah. I was like, Chicago's <laughs> going to be just fine. There's yeah. a lake, you know. <laughs> But yeah, but it's good. But but since then, Chicago has really changed and it's become a, I mean, I'm sorry, but like, I'm so glad I don't live in New York right now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I really am. And I think like the, I have really grown to love the city and I think there's enough here for everybody and there's so much happening here and it really has become you know, in the last 20 years, it has become a world-class city that's, it's not a want for any, you know, so, you know. It's a world-class city. That's where it's, we live. <laughs> it's a world-class city. <laughs> oh, yeah, this was so nice. Yeah. I'm excited to see your show in person. Or at oh, least yeah. Well, I mean it about, you know, uh, Joe and I are very good cooks, so you guys have to come over. I'm mastering the art of a, of a vermouth cocktail with like a very good shrub. La la. Mm, you know, always down for a good cocktail. So, we'll you what? I'm always down for a good cocktail. Yeah. <laughs> I'm actually so, not drinking during quarantine. Oh, that's smart. What do you guys have next? Like, what are you both doing? I mean, so Sarah and I teach, I guess we can share this on the pod. Sarah and I both teach, we co teach together for ASM, After School Matters. Oh, yeah. We do that, yeah. So, we're finishing up this program term and then just preparing for summer which we don't know what that looks like yet so does anybody mm-hmm. no no it's like I, I my question is like how far do you keep do we keep delaying things you know like I, know. I, I was supposed to do a residency in June and that I just like completely said no because I was like I'm not paying for a <laughs> flight to then get a flight credit you know where I couldn't afford it in the first place I know then, I got I got offered a haystack residency that I was like, I was so looking forward to. <laughs> yeah. and, and they can't, they, they, haystack has canceled their entire summer program. Most places. Yeah. There's just like nothing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then there's like so some sad. stuff in August and I'm even kind of like, mm, is August even going to happen? I don't know. So just trying, I, I know Madeline and I are both just trying to stay healthy and fit and productive and sane and yeah. in touch with people. Yeah, but Sarah and I usually see each other four and a half times a week. And like, I haven't seen Sarah in like, over, like we, cause we taught together. And like, I feel like the last day of ASM that we had in school was the last time I saw you. So wow. and we, we didn't know it was going to be the last day either. So it was like really abrupt and. I know we would have, we would have gone out or something. <laughs> well this was fun Dion I can't wait to see you thank you if you enjoyed this podcast please share subscribe and review on iTunes and SoundCloud and follow us on Instagram at this moment here thank you for listening